Section 13 of Once a Week by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 1 Merely Players On the Bat's Back With the idea of brightening cricket, my friend Twyford has given me a new bat. I have always felt that, in my own case, it was the inadequacy of the weapon, rather than of the man behind it, which accounted for a certain monotony of low scoring. With this new bat, I hope to prove the correctness of my theory. My old bat has always been a trier, but of late it has been manifestly past its work. Again and again its drive over Longoff's head has failed to carry the bunker at mid-off. More than once it has proved itself an inch too narrow to ensure that cut past third man to the boundary, which is considered one of the most graceful strokes in my repertoire. Worst of all, I have found it, at moments of crisis, such as the beginning of the first over, utterly inadequate to deal with the ball which keeps low. When bowled by such a ball, and I may say that I am never bowled by any other, I look reproachfully at the bottom of my bat as I walk back to the pavilion. Surely, I say to it, you were much longer than this when we started out. Perhaps it was not magnanimous always to put the blame on my partner for our accidents together, it would have been more chivalrous to have shielded him. No, no, I should have said to my companions, as they received me with sympathetic murmurs of bad luck. No, no, you mustn't think that. It was my own fault. Don't reproach the bat. It would have been well to have spoken thus, and indeed, when I had had time to collect myself, I did so speak. But, out on the field, in the first shame of defeat, I had to let the truth come out, that one reproachful glance at my bat I could not hide. But there was one habit of my bat's, a weakness of old age, I admit, but not the less annoying, about which it was my duty to let a world know. One's grandfather may have a passion for the gum on the back of postage stamps, and one hushes it up. But if he be deaf, the visitor must be warned. My bat had a certain looseness in the shoulder, so that, at any quick movement of it, it clicked. If I struck the ball well and truly in the direction of point, this defect did not matter. But if the ball went past me into the hands of the wicket-keeper, an unobservant bowler would frequently say, "'How's that?' and an ill-informed umpire would reply, out. It was my duty before the game began to take the visiting umpire on one side and give him a practical demonstration of the click. But these are troubles of the past. I have my new bat now, and I can see that cricket will become a different game for me. My practice of this morning has convinced me of this. It was not one of your stupid practices at the net, with two burly professionals bumping down balls at your body and telling you to come out to them, sir. It was a quiet practice in my rooms after breakfast, 
with no moving object to distract my attention and spoil my stroke. The bat comes up well. It is light, and yet there is plenty of wood in it. Its drives along the carpet were excellent. Its cuts and leg glides, all that could be wished. I was a little disappointed with its half-arm hook, which dislodged a teacup, and gave what would have been an easy catch to mid-on standing close in by the sofa. But I am convinced that a little oil will soon put that right. And yet there seemed to be something lacking in it. After trying every stroke with it, after tucking it under my arm and walking back to the bathroom, touching my cap at the pianola on the way, after experiments with it in all positions, I still felt that there was something wanting to make it the perfect bat. So I put it in a cab and went round with it to Henry. Henry has brightened first-class cricket for some years now. Tell me, Henry, I said, what's wrong with this bat? It seems all right, he said, after waving it about. Rather a good one. I laid it down on the floor and looked at it. Then I turned it on its face and looked at it. And then I knew. It wants a little silver shield on the back, I said. That's it. Why? Is it a presentation bat? asked Henry. In a sense, yes. It was presented to me by Twyford. What for? Really, I said modestly, I hardly like. Why do people give one things? Affection, Henry. Pity, generosity, or... Are you going to put that on the shield? Presented out of sheer pity to... Don't be silly. Of course not. I shall put presented in commemoration of his masterly double century against the authentics. Or something like that. You've no idea how it impresses the wicket-keeper. He really sees quite a lot of the back of one's bat. Your inscription, said Henry, as he filled his pipe slowly, will be either a lie or extremely unimpressive. It will be neither, Henry. If I put my own name on it and talked about my double century, of course it would be a lie. But the inscription will be to Stanley Boland. Who's he? I don't know. I just made him up now. But supposing my little shield says, Stanley Boland, HPCC, season 1912, batting average 116.34. How is that a lie? What does HPCC stand for? I don't know. It doesn't mean anything, really. I'll leave out batting average if it makes it more truthful. Stanley Boland, HPCC, 1912, 116.34. It's really just a little note I make on the back of my bat to remind me of something or rather I've forgotten. 116.34 is probably Boland's telephone number or the size of something I want at his shop. But by a pure accident, the wicket keeper thinks it means something else, and he tells the bowler at the end of the over that it's that chap, Boland, who had an average of over a century for the Hampstead Polytechnic last year. Of course, that makes the bowler nervous, and he starts sending down long hops. I see, said Henry, and he began to read his paper again. So tomorrow I take my bat to the silversmiths and have a little engraved shield fastened on it. 
Of course, with a really trustworthy weapon, I am certain to collect pots of runs this season, but there is no harm in making things as easy as possible for oneself. And yet there is this to be thought of. Even the very best bat in the world may fail to score, and it might so happen that I was dismissed, owing to some defect in the pitch, before my silver shield had time to impress the opposition, or, again, I might, through ill health, perform so badly that quite a wrong impression of the standard of the Hampstead Polytechnic would be created, an impression which I should hate to be the innocent means of circulating. So, on second thoughts, I lean to a different inscription. On the back of my bat, a plain silver shield will say, quite simply, this. To Stanley Boland, for saving life at sea, from a few admirers. Thus, I shall have two strings to my bow, and, if by any unhappy chance I fail as a cricketer, the wicket-keeper will say to his comrades, as I walk sadly to the pavilion, A poor bat, perhaps, but a brave, a very brave fellow. It becomes us all to make at least one effort to brighten cricket. Uncle Edward Celia has more relations than would seem possible. I am gradually getting to know some of them by sight, and a few more by name, but I still make mistakes. The other day, for instance, she happened to say she was going to a concert with Uncle Godfrey. Godfrey, I said, Godfrey, no, don't tell me. I shall get it in a moment. Godfrey, yes, that's it. He's the architect. He lives at Liverpool, has five children, and sent us the asparagus cooler as a wedding present. No marks, said Celia. Then he's the unmarried one in Scotland who breeds terriers. I knew I should get it. As a matter of fact, he lives in London and breeds oratorios. It's the same idea. That was the one I meant. The great point is that I placed him. Now give me another one, I leant forward eagerly. Well, I was just going to ask you, have you arranged anything about Monday? Monday, I said. Monday. No, don't tell me. I shall get it in a moment. Monday... He's the one who... Oh, you mean the day of the week. Who's a funny? asked Celia of the teapot. Sorry, I really thought you meant another relation. What am I doing? I'm playing golf if I can find somebody to play with. Well, ask Edward. I could place Edward at once. Edward, I need hardly say, is Celia's uncle, one of the ones I have not yet met. He married a very young aunt of hers, not much older than Celia. But I don't know him, I said. It doesn't matter. Write and ask him to meet you at the golf club. I'm sure he'd love to. Wouldn't he think it rather cool, this sudden attack from a perfectly unknown nephew? I fancy the first step ought to come from uncle. But you're older than he is. True. It's rather a tricky point in etiquette. Well, I'll risk it. This was the letter I sent to him. My dear Uncle Edward, why haven't you written to me this term? 
I have spent the five shillings you gave me when I came back. It was awfully ripping of you to give it to me, but I have spent it now. Are you coming down to see me this term? If you aren't, you might write to me. There is a post office here where you can change postal orders. What I really mean is, can you play golf with me on Monday at Mudbury Hill? I am your new and favorite nephew, and it is quite time we met. Be at the clubhouse at 2.30, if you can. I don't quite know how we shall recognize each other, but the well-dressed man in the nut-brown suit will probably be me. My features are plain but good, except where I fell against the bath taps yesterday. If you have fallen against anything which would give me a clue to your face, you might let me know. Also, you might let me know if you are a professor at golf. If you are, I will read some more books on the subject between now and Monday. Just at the moment, my game is putrid. Your niece and my wife sends her love. Goodbye. I was top of my class in Latin last week. I must now stop, as it is my bath night. I am your loving nephew. The next day, I had a letter from my uncle. My dear nephew, I was so glad to get your nice little letter and to hear that you were working hard. Let me know when it is your bath night again. These things always interest me. I shall be delighted to play golf with you on Monday. You will have no difficulty in recognizing me. I should describe myself roughly as something like Apollo and something like Little Tish, if you know what I mean. It depends how you come up to me. I am an excellent golfer and never take more than two putts in a bunker. Till 2.30, then, I enclose a postal order for sixpence to see you through the rest of your term. Your favorite uncle, Edward. Perhaps you could describe him more minutely, I said. I hate wandering about vaguely and asking everybody I see if he's my uncle. It seems so odd. You're sure to meet, all right, said Celia confidently. He's, well, he's nice-looking, and and clean-shaven, and, oh, you'll recognize him. At 2.30 on Monday, I arrived at the clubhouse and waited for my uncle. Various people appeared, but none seemed in want of a nephew. When 2.45 came, there was still no available uncle. True, there was one unattached man reading in a corner of the smoke-room, but he had a moustache, the sort of heavy moustache one associates with a major. At three o'clock, I became desperate. After all, Celia had not seen Edward for some time. Perhaps he had grown a moustache lately. Perhaps he had grown one specially for today. At any rate, there would be no harm in asking this major man if he was my uncle. Even if he wasn't, he might give me a game of golf. Excuse me, I said politely, but are you by any chance my uncle Edward? You're what? I was almost certain you weren't, but I thought I'd just ask. I'm sorry. Not at all. Naturally, one wants to find one's uncle. Have you, er, lost him long? Years, I said sadly. Er, I wonder if you would care to adopt me. I mean, give me a game this afternoon? My man hasn't turned up. By all means. I'm not very great. Neither am I. Shall we start now? Good. I was sorry to miss Edward, 
but I wasn't going to miss a game of golf on such a lovely day. My spirits rose. Not even the fact that there were no caddies left and I had to carry my own clubs could depress me. The major drove. I am not going to describe the whole game, though my clique shot at the fifth hole from a hanging lie to within two feet of the... Mm, however, I mustn't go into that now. But it surprised the major a good deal, and when at the next hole I laid my brassy absolutely dead, he... But I can tell you about that some other time. It is sufficient to say now that when we reached the seventeenth tee, I was one up. We both played the seventeenth well. He was a foot from the hole in four. I played my third from the edge of the green and was ridiculously short, giving myself a twenty-foot putt for the hole. Leaving my clubs, I went forward with the putter and, by the absurdest luck, pushed the ball in. "'Good,' said the Major. "'Your game.' I went back for my clubs. When I turned round, the Major was walking carelessly off to the next tee, leaving the flag lying in the green and my ball still in the tin. "'Slacker,' I said to myself, and walked up to the hole. And then I had a terrible shock. I saw in the tin not my ball, but a mustache.' "'Am I going mad?' I said. "'I could have sworn that I drove off with a colonel, "'and yet I seemed to have holed out with a major's mustache. "'I picked it up and hurried after him. "'Major,' I said, "'excuse me, you've dropped your mustache. "'It fell off at the critical stage of the match. "'The shock of losing was too much for you. "'The strain of... He turned his clean-shaven face round and grinned at me. "'On second thoughts,' he said, "'I am your long-lost uncle.'" THE RENAISSANCE OF BRITAIN Peter Riley was one of those lucky people who take naturally to games. Actually, he got his blue for cricket, rugger, and boxing, but his perfect eye and wrist made him a beautiful player of any game with a ball. Also, he rode and shot well, and knew all about the inside of a car. But although he was always enthusiastic about anything he was doing, he was not really keen on games. He preferred wandering about the country looking for birds' nests, or discovering the haunts of a rare butterfly. He liked managing a small boat single-handed in a stiff breeze. He would have enjoyed being upset and having to swim a long way to shore. Most of all, perhaps, he loved to lie on the tops of cliffs and think of the wonderful things that he would do for England when he was a cabinet minister. For politics was to be his profession, and he had just taken a first in history by way of preparation for it. There were a lot of silly people who envied Peter's mother. They thought, poor dears, that she must be very, very proud of him, for they regarded Peter as the ideal of the modern young Englishman. If only my boy grows up to be like Peter Riley, they used to say to themselves, and then add quickly, but of course he'll be much nicer. 
In their ignorance, they didn't see that it was the Peters of England who were making our country the laughing-stock of the world. If you had been in Berlin in 1916, you would have seen Peter, for he had been persuaded, much against his will, to uphold the honor of Great Britain in the middle weights at the Olympic Games. He got a position in the papers as P. Riley Disqualified. The result, he could only suppose, of his folly in allowing his opponent to butt him in the stomach. He was both annoyed and amused about it, offered to fight his vanquisher any time in England, and privately thanked heaven that he could now get back to London in time for his favorite sister's wedding. But he didn't. The English trainer, who had been sent at the public expense to America for a year to study the proper methods, got hold of him. "'I've been watching you, young man,' he said. "'You'll have to give yourself up to me now. "'You're the coming champion.' "'I'm sorry,' said Peter politely, "'but I shan't be fighting again.' "'Fighting,' said the trainer scornfully. "'Don't you worry. "'I'll take good care that you don't fight any more. "'The event you're going to win is pushing the chisel. "'I've been watching you.' and you've got the most perfect neck and calf muscles for it I've ever seen. No more fighting for you, my boy, nor cricket, nor anything else. I'm not going to let you spoil those muscles. I don't think I've ever pushed the chisel, said Peter. Besides, it's over, isn't it? Over? Of course it's over, and that confounded American won. Poor old England, as all the papers said. Then it's too late to begin practice, said Peter, thankfully. Well, it's too late for the 1920 games, but we can do a lot in eight years, and I think I can get you fit for the 1924 games at Peking. Peter stared at him in amazement. My good man, he said at last, in 1924 I shall be in London, and I hope in the House of Commons. And what about the honor of your country? Do you want to read the jeers in the American papers when we lose pushing the chisel in 1924? I don't care a curse what the American papers say, said Peter angrily. Then you're very different from other Englishmen, said the trainer sternly. Of course, Peter was persuaded. He couldn't let England be the laughing-stock of the world. So for eight years he lived under the eye of the trainer, rising at five and retiring to bed at seven-thirty. This prevented him from taking much part in the ordinary social activities of the evening, and even his luncheon and garden-party invitations had to be declined in some such words as Mr. Peter Riley regrets that he is unable to accept Lady Vavasour's kind invitation for Monday the 13th, as he will be hopping round the garden on one leg then. His career, too, had to be abandoned, for it was plain that, even if he had the leisure to get into Parliament, the early hours he kept would not allow him to take part in any important divisions. But there were compensations— as he watched his calves swell, as he looked in the glass and noticed each morning that his head was a little more on one side, 
sure sign of the expert chisel-pusher, as, still surer sign, his hands became more knuckly and his mouth remained more permanently open, he knew that his devotion to duty would not be without its reward. He saw already his country triumphing, and heard the chorus of congratulation in the newspapers that England was still a nation of sportsmen. In 1924, Peking was crowded. There were, of course, the ordinary million inhabitants, and in addition, people had thronged from all parts to see the great chisel-pusher of whom so much has been heard. That they did not come in vain, we in London knew one July morning as we opened our papers. Pushing the chisel, freestyle. 1. P. Riley, Great Britain, 5 and 3 fourth inches, world record. 2. H. Biff Puffer, America, 5 and a half inch. A. Wafer, America, was disqualified for going outside the wood. And so, England was herself again. There was only one discordant note in her triumph. Mr. P. A. Vale pointed out in all the papers that Peter Riley, in the usual pig-headed English way, had been employing entirely the wrong grip. Mr. Vale's book, How to Push the Chisel, illustrated with fifty full plates of Mr. Vale in knickerbockers pushing the chisel, explained the correct method. The Birthday Present It's my birthday tomorrow, said Mrs. Jeremy as she turned the pages of her engagement book. Bless us, so it is, said Jeremy. You're thirty-nine or twenty-seven or something. I must go and examine the wine cellar. I believe there's one bottle left in the Apollinaris bin. It's the only stuff in the house that fizzes. Jeremy, I'm only twenty-six. You don't look it, darling. I mean, you do look it, dear. What I mean, well, never mind that. Let's talk about birthday presents. Think of something absolutely tremendous for me to give you. A rope of pearls. I didn't mean that sort of tremendous said Jeremy quickly. Anyone could give you a rope of pearls. It's simply a question of overdrawing enough from the bank. I meant something difficult that would really prove my love for you. Like Lloyd George's ear, or the Kaiser's cigar holder. Something where I could kill somebody for you first. I am in a very devoted mood this morning. Are you really? smiled Mrs. Jeremy. Because... I am. So is Baby, unfortunately. She will probably want to give you something horribly expensive. Between ourselves, dear, I shall be glad when Baby is old enough to buy her own presents for her mamma. Last Christmas, her idea of a complete edition of Meredith and a pair of silver-backed brushes nearly ruined me. You won't be ruined this time, Jeremy. I don't want you to give me anything... I want you to show that devotion of yours by doing something for me. Anything, said Jeremy grandly. Shall I swim the channel? I was practicing my new trudgeon strokes in the bath this morning. He got up from his chair and prepared to give an exhibition of it. 
"'No, nothing like that,' Mrs. Jeremy hesitated, looking anxiously at him, and then went boldly at it. "'I want you to go in for that physical culture that everyone's talking about.' "'Who's everyone? Cook hasn't said a word to me on the subject. Neither has Baby. Neither has—' "'Mrs. Hodgkin was talking to me about it yesterday. She was saying how thin you were looking.' "'The scandal that goes on in these villages,' sighed Jeremy. "'And the vicar's wife, too. Dear, all this is weeks and weeks old. I suppose it has only just reached the vicarage. Do let us be up to date. Physical culture has been quite démodé since last Thursday.' "'Well, I never saw anything in the paper. Knowing what wives are, I hid it from you.' "'Let us now, my dear wife, talk of something else.' "'Jeremy, not for my birthday present,' said his wife in a reproachful voice. "'The vicar does them every morning,' she added casually. "'Poor beggar! But it's what vicars are for.' Jeremy chuckled to himself. "'I should love to see him,' he said. "'I suppose it's private, though. "'Perhaps, if I said press.' "'You are thin, you know.' "'My dear, the proper way to get fat is not to take violent exercise, "'but to lie in a hammock all day and drink milk. "'Besides, do you want a fat husband? "'Does baby want a fat father? "'You wouldn't like, at your next garden party, "'to have everybody asking you in a whisper, "'Who is the enormously stout gentleman?' If nature made me thin, or, to be more accurate, slender and of a pleasing litheness, let us believe that she knew best. It isn't only thinness. These exercises keep you young and well and active in mind. Like the vicar? He's only just begun, said his wife hastily. Let's wait a bit and watch him, suggested Jeremy. If his sermons really get better, then I'll think about it seriously. I make you a present of his baldness. I shan't ask for any improvement there. Mrs. Jeremy went over to her husband and patted the top of his head. Jeremy looked unhappy. What pains me most about this, he said, is the revelation of your shortcomings as a wife. You ought to think me the picture of manly beauty. Baby does. She thinks that, next to the postman, I am one of the... So you are, dear. Well, why not leave it? Really, I can't waste my time fattening refined gold and stoutening the lily. I am a busy man. I walk up and down the pergola. I keep a dog. I paint little watercolors. I am treasurer of the cricket club. My life is full of activities." "'This only takes a quarter of an hour before your bath, Jeremy.' "'I am shaving, then. I should cut myself and get all the soap in my eyes. It would be most dangerous. When you were a widow, and Baby and the Pony were orphans, you and Mrs. Hodgkin would be very sorry. But it would be too late. The vicar, tearing himself away from position five to conduct the funeral service, "'Jeremy, don't!' "'Ah, woman, now I move you. "'You are beginning to see what you were in danger of doing. "'Death I laugh at, but a fat death? 
the death of a stout man who has swallowed the shaving brush through taking too deep a breath before beginning exercise three, that is more than I can bear. Jeremy, when I said I wanted to kill someone for you, I didn't think you would suggest myself, least of all, that you wanted me fattened up like a Christmas turkey first. To go down to posterity as the large-bodied gentleman who inhaled the badger's hair, to be billed in the London press in the words Curious Fatal Accident to Adipose Treasurer, to do this simply by way of celebrating your 26th birthday, when we actually have a bottle of Apollinaris left in the Apollinaris bin, Darling, you cannot have been thinking. His wife patted his head again gently. Oh, Jeremy, you hopeless person, she sighed. Give me a new sunshade. I want one badly. No, said Jeremy. Baby shall give you that. For myself, I am still feeling that I should like to kill somebody for you. Lord George? No. F.E. Smith? No. He rubbed his head thoughtfully. Who invented those exercises? he asked suddenly. A German, I think. Then, said Jeremy, buttoning up his coat, I shall go and kill him. End of section 13